For decades, the picture of financial planning looked like this. Work hard and save your money. And eventually, you'll be able to afford a house and a comfortable retirement. But for many young Canadians, that picture is starting to look very different. Back in the day, yeah, you could get a house and everything, but you could put that same amount of work in, like right now, and you would not be able to get a house. You might be able to pay for some apartment months and some food, and that's about it. With all that hard work, it's you don't really see much for it these days. Welcome to The Great Disconnect, a podcast series from the Manitoba Financial Services Agency. This season, we'll talk about the financial obstacles facing young Canadians, and we'll dig into some of the ways they can take back control. I'm Ainsley Cunningham, Manager of Education and Communications with the Manitoba Financial Services Agency. In this podcast, we're exploring the factors shaping young people's financial future, from the basics of financial planning to the technology shaping the new financial landscape. But this episode is devoted to financial obligations, from the debt that can hinder or help financial planning to the family obligations that exist around money. But let's start with debt, which many young people have, from the costs associated with starting out. As I told you that I'm already having an educational loan, um, in the recent future, I can think of auto loan because I'll be getting a car to move around the city and that will be an additional debt. And other than that, my credit card, I do have a credit card. Others like Destiny avoid the constraints that being in debt can put on one's life. No, I would never get a credit card in my life. I live by debit cards and... Um... So how big of an issue is debt? It's a very serious matter in Canada. Um, our uh, debt, private debt in this case, is um, very high. And so one of the great dangers in raising interest rates is the possibility of mass bankruptcy. Housing prices, of course, housing debt is a major issue, but it's not just housing debt. It's also uh, interest rates, uh, interest payments on uh, um, credit cards, et cetera. This is Robert Chernomas, professor of economics at the University of Manitoba. So Canadian households' debt-to-income ratio is extraordinarily high and very precarious. And so raising interest rates, everyone you know can see in the news, they raise interest rates, so a house of $350,000, the mortgage payment is now $600 higher. Now, that I'll, now I'm not taking a particular interest rate, but depending on how high the interest rate is. And so uh, people, um, their debt it can become increasingly precarious because the carrying costs are growing. And so it's a real danger that, that they could create, it's almost inevitable they're going to create a recession. The question is how deep and long it is and to what extent it'll be, it'll, they'll be able to, rec- will be able to recover from it soon enough. For young people like Varun, following a strategy can help them manage personal debt. One very fine thing which I learned during my MBA is like whenever you are having a debt, there is something called um, debt snowball. So what they tell is like if you are having a debt, you you might be having credit cards, you might be having loans. So pay off the debt, which is uh, of the least amount, and then start going one by one to the higher one, uh, maintaining uh, the minimum amount of payment in the higher ones and first pay off your basic one. And the other thing is, which the other people can follow is the 
debt avalanche in which the debts which is having the highest percentage are paid off first and then the debts with the lower percentage so these are the some of the things which can be incorporated into the financial planning but young people aren't only facing debt from student loans credit cards and mortgages they're also facing a growing government debt Yeah, uh, it's an important distinction. Um household debt means you essentially have to pay back um based on whatever constraints your income allow, allows you to pay back. Governments can of course tax and there's no reason a government would ever go into debt. I mean, certainly debt of course they go into that they would ever go bankrupt. And so the question then becomes both for you and the government, what do you spend your money on? And so if you spend your money on consumption, you decide to take $10,000 and go off to Paris for a great weekend versus let's say here's my self-interest investing in a university education, the university education is going to promote your long-term economic welfare. You're going to make higher higher wages, more job security, lower unemployment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the same thing would be true of the government. Um we have something called multipliers in economics. And what is a multiplier? Well, if you cut taxes or increase government spending, what's the impact going to be on the economy? And the multipliers tell us that government spending rather than cutting taxes brings a much bigger multiplier. University of British Columbia professor Paul Kershaw says the question of what governments spend their money on is particularly significant for young people's relationship to older generations. This matters in particular as the population is aging and that comes with, you know, increased expenditure requirements on say medical care or retirement income security. Important things that my mom draws upon. But it's causing two resulting problems for younger people. One, it's crowding out investments that really matter for their own pocketbook and standard of living. So we have long left childcare and other rent or mortgage size payment. I'm so delighted that the $10 a day branding that Gen Squeeze created for a national childcare recommendation has been taken up by our federal government, which will make a really big difference saving the generation raising young kids thousands of dollars in childcare costs. But we're doing all of this in a context where we're leaving larger government debts for younger Canadians. A young person under 45 today will inherit a government debt that's 3 times larger after adjusting for inflation and economic growth than did a baby boomer when they were the same age. So debt can be a problem, but being able to take on debt can also shape a more stable financial future, including for people like Vroon who's using a credit card as part of his financial plan and because i have to build my history because i don't have a history of uh, a financial history over here in canada and i have to build one so that is a necessity and one thing is like if you have a, a financial history maybe you can have a lower percentage on your future loans maybe that you can use those loans to build off uh, assets so you can buy a new house and you have think about that think you have to pay lesser uh, interest rate on that house and you have increased saving for some young people being able to borrow allows them to pursue a more stable financial future by starting their own business a path that's also in line with their values university of waterloo professor sean gobi you know i think a lot of a lot of people right now especially coming out of the pandemic where we've had a couple of years of of forced self reflection are thinking a lot about you know what is my place in the world and how can i contribute in a way that isn't just going to you know keep myself afloat and possibly my family but also make the world a better place 
But Gobi says this path isn't always straightforward, especially for those who don't have a financial cushion to fall back on. I'm at a very entrepreneurial university at the University of Waterloo. The, the advice that often comes from uh, professors and, and folks who run our incubator centers is like, this is a time for you to follow your passion, follow your idea, and try something new. And that is great advice for people who have a lot of safety nets to fall back on. It's terrible advice for the first generation university student coming out of a household of poverty and personal experience of marginalization, because that's the advice that takes someone who's already on the edge and pushes them off. Challenges aside, a survey suggests a majority of Gen Z and younger millennials want to start their own businesses. So where can young people overcome the barriers to taking this step? Dan Richard with the Indigenous Chamber of Commerce in Manitoba says targeted supports can help level the playing field. I mean, obviously that would be a big challenge for anyone coming in. Uh, you need a certain amount of capital or, you know, if you're going to a bank, credit union, or any financial institution and you want to borrow money, well, they want to know what kind of collateral you have or something to support a repayment of a loan. So it's uh, more financial institutions or there's more have popped up uh, not too bad in Manitoba having more you know being first nation indigenous based uh, kind of thing so it's uh, understanding that they they do exist and what kind of uh, programs do they have for that kind of thing so and then maybe uh, places like the chamber or other groups are there to help guide people on where they go uh, because there's a lot of other organizations out there who are trying to support Indigenous business uh, through um, lending programs or those kind of things. So it's, okay, how, how do they find those places? Richard says existing businesses also have a role to play in giving the next generation a leg up. We hear all the time, and I'm sure you've heard this, is uh, sometimes people say there's so much work out there. But then when someone actually goes to look for work, it's not always the uh, pre-professional type engagement. It's maybe more, uh, you know, fast food or working at the malls or those kind that are really struggling to keep employment. And that's okay for a student, but if they're looking to start a career, to start something, they're looking for maybe uh, more meaningful, uh, longer-term type employment, you know, that may have benefits and those kind of things that help support them and then grow that will then allow them to maybe one day be business owners. Uh, those are the tough ones. But we do know uh, in Manitoba, uh, especially across Canada, is we have a huge Indigenous youth uh, population growing. So if we don't uh, take advantage of trying to assist them and, and uh, work with them over the next five years, we're going to lose them to other areas of the country where they can go and find that work or they won't be prepared to take it. Existing businesses also have a role to play in lowering the risks for young people looking to become entrepreneurs. And University of Waterloo professor Sean Gobi says the benefits of that flow both ways. One thing to consider there is that it's very hard to start a business. Most small businesses fail. And some of the reasons that those small businesses fail are outside of the control of the entrepreneur who's looking to start those businesses. Yeah. 
um, consider that um, there are a lot of people out there right now who are in almost the mirror image situation from you. They aren't trying to start up a business, but they're looking to retire from the business that they already own. We're entering a time of a huge business succession crisis in Canada. And it's often very hard to find people to take over a small business who are interested in keeping it going and not just selling it for parts and are embedded in the communities in which those businesses are embedded. Embedded. So, you know, if you're thinking about doing something entrepreneurial, um, don't just think about starting something for yourself, but also look around and see, you know, is there a business in my town who's working an area I'm interested in where I could um, maybe approach the owner about potentially buying that business uh, when they're ready to sell or apprenticing under them to be able to build the skills and connections to take it over uh, sometime in the future. And that can be a really, um, that can be a really good way to not just get a better income for yourself later on, because uh, ultimately, um, you know, a lot of the highest income people in Canada are people who are business owners of various sizes, but to also take some control over what your um, financial and professional future looks like. And I know that so much of what we have around an entrepreneurial community in Canada is based around starting up something new. But remember, a business that's already been around has uh, has already avoided some of the most challenging early pitfalls um, and lets you jump into jump into a company that's already run and managed well enough that you can probably just keep it going while also establishing your own personal uh, footprint on it. These aren't the only intergenerational conversations that shape young people's financial future. So um, when I got my first job, I was in Canada here, and I remember like speaking to my dad. For people like Angela, the generation she's learning from is the one closest to her, her older family members. And he said also, um, Angela, you're starting a career, you're starting a life, you should... Um, definitely give to the community like pay um, as Christians we pay 10% to like the work of God and just spiritual and faith-based stuff and he said remember to do that and also like save and plan for the future because um, we're not always like at the end of the day you're now becoming an independent person and so you should be able to fend for yourself without going broke so you don't want to earn this amount of money and then in a couple of days or weeks or months you're like without anything so you should definitely have a plan for yourself and try to incorporate, try to remember all these things as you go along life. Because as you earn, it gets easier and easier to just like relax and slack. But um, at the end of the day, when you have these things at the back of your mind, you remember where you're coming from and also have a plan for where you want to be. For new Canadians like Varun, family obligations shape financial plans in other ways. So it might not be happening here, but people from India, from Afghanistan, from China, they invest a lot in their brothers and sisters because their parents are back there. If they are here and their brothers and sisters are coming over here, so they are supposed to take care of their siblings too. That is an extra um, extra financial burden on them. So that may stop from uh, them temporarily from investing till their siblings also rise up and they start also earning. So that is, again, a cultural impediment. Yes, that might not be happening here, but people from other cultures are doing it. The financial obligations young people feel toward their families can shape their financial decisions. 
For people whose families are elsewhere, these obligations have particular significance. The first time when I came in Canada, you know, that time I realized the value of the exchange rate. <laughs> so when I was in India, the money which we used to earn when it is converted into Canadian dollars, so 60 rupees is one Canadian dollar. <laughs> so if I earn 60 rupees there, that is converted into one Canadian dollar. And that is a huge amount. So like, and... Definitely. If we are not working over here and we are taking money from our parents back there in India, it be, it puts a huge pressure on their shoulders. That is why if the students are working over here, um, it eased the life uh, of their parents back in their countries. In other cases, the financial pressures facing young people can put pressure on the relationships within families. Quite often, financial abuse doesn't happen by itself. So included in our understanding of abuse of older adults, and that applies across the lifespan, is abuse that could be physical or emotional. It could be sexual. This is Kirsten Roger, a professor in community health sciences at the University of Manitoba. And so financial abuse is quite often part of a package. Roger says research suggests that adult children experiencing employment issues may be more likely to perpetrate financial abuse against older family members. We also see issues in some cases around addiction and uh, sometimes we look at lack of education and awareness around dementia. And there have been some really hard cases even in the province of Manitoba where an older adult um, was experiencing tremendous abuse and the adult child who was a caregiver um, was really doing the wrong thing. With financial abuse, we see that youth have felt entitled. You know, it's going to be my money anyways if it's a family situation. So why don't I get it now and I'm going to fight to get it now or I'm just going to take it now or I'm going to get it anyways. So I think that issue of entitlement within families can be quite strong. And so when we think about financial abuse in that larger context, uh, some of the words that come to mind are stealing, it could be coercion, so coercing someone to hand over 20 bucks, 100 bucks, a Visa card, an Interact card. It could be forging a signature, and so you're, you know, actually finding a way to steal that money. Um, it could be deception. Roger says one way to diffuse the tension and the risk around money is to start with clear communication of people's wishes. I think when older adults are very prepared to have these discussions early on and openly with anyone who might come in contact with their finances, and this includes family members, but some people don't have family and so it's friends or maybe it's a financial institution. Um, we need to think about older adults having that very open communication and then ideally putting that in writing in an official and legal way with everybody present. Hopefully there's consensus and agreement. We all understand what's happening with my finances. We all agree. We are here together. We're going to sign off on this. And this is what my wishes are and what I want to have happen. And so I think that's a way to prevent 
financial abuse because everybody's been on the same page. And if there's disagreement, there you can discuss that in a reasonable period of time. So I would think very openly about family. I would think very openly about those discussions happening. Financial planner Carolyn Lucier says having these conversations can also foster healthy attitudes towards financial planning. I have a specific client um, in mind, um, a mother and son that I, I've met with, and, and the son is now, as I said, you know, graduated and gone off to um, have a fabulous start to his career. And he has a good base, you know, for to buy his first home and then some and some retirement savings already started and just a genuine interest. And he'll reach out to me to just ask my opinion on something that's come up. But he has a really strong sense of of what to do. I credit that to his parents and a long, a long um, life of, I think, great parenting values. And it goes, so, so it goes a little bit beyond that. I just, from, from knowing uh, the mother quite well, you know, every time I meet with her, I just think like, wow, you've just done such a great job with your son. Like he is just a good person and he wants to do well for himself. Like Angela's parents did with her, Lucy is also already having conversations with her children about their holistic financial future. It's interesting. I have yeah, three young children, very young, so we have a ways to go. So I have so many ideas that I'd like to implement with my children when it comes to, you know, even charitable uh, donations, wanting to really talk about that. I've tried with my four-year-old. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I thought, I'm not doing a very good job of this. And so I'm, you know, looking into what are the things you can do at different ages to get that mindset going. But the, the, um, the internal um, desire for them to do it themselves, not just because mom and dad said it's a good idea to do uh, charitable donations because I want to, and what does that mean? Or I want to create this goal and achieve it for myself, not because mom and dad said I should. So whether it's having conversations about the debt burden facing young people or strategizing how older generations can help shoulder the load, Talking about the struggles young people are facing can help everyone see the future more clearly. How can we have the love around that intergenerational table not only be a common feature of when families gather in homes, but how can we bring that love so that it characterizes more our world of politics? Because we, we, it's too easy sometimes for an older demographic to see, you know, they're relatively, they're often relatively comfortable. They're, they're better off by comparison with seniors back in the day. Of course, you know, everyone has challenges and whatnot, but they'll see We worked hard, it's paid off. And if only they work hard, they'll have what we do down the road. That's not the case. And we have to disrupt that narrative amongst an older demographic. And so we need a younger demographic to be confident enough to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, uh, I, uh, I, I'm working really hard. I'm having to actually, you know, go get more post-secondary than many people did back in your era. I'm having to pay more for that privilege. I'm willing to take on the student debt to go with it. I'm then delaying actually, you know, starting my own home or owning and whatnot in ways that you didn't have to do. These are big systems problems. But if we recognize that it's not an individual failure, that the system is dysfunctional, then we can move from a place of feeling personally anxious that one might be doing something wrong. I say, no, there's something bigger going on. And while individuals alone can't work hard enough typically to you know, get themselves out of this dysfunctional system, we can come together and use our voices as citizens, young and old alike, to say, let's fix the system. That's it for this episode of The Great Disconnect. Thanks for listening. 
Next time on the podcast, we'll hear about how some young people's financial struggles have them looking to technologies like cryptocurrency. It's hard to be young because gas is through the roof, rent is through the roof. And so for, and this is another thing, again, this goes back to the FOMO. The reason you have to think, look at the root cause. Why are people so emotionally vulnerable that they're susceptible to FOMO? High student loan debt, high unemployment, stagnant jobs, soul crushing inflation. And so I've come along and I tell you, got an amazing opportunity to help reverse your entire life because you're tired of being poor. All you need to do is buy my digital thingamajiggy, my crypto, and hold it, hodl it. We're going to the moon and I'm going to be your financial salvation. That's next time on The Great Disconnect. Disconnect.